Slate Money is sponsored by OneHub, letting you securely store and share your business files online. Featuring the all-new OneHub Sync, the fastest way to keep all your teams working from the same page. Slate Money listeners can try it free and receive a special discount by visiting onehub.com money. And by Mile IQ, the app that automatically tracks and logs your miles, making sure that every dollar is accounted for and leaving you to focus on what's important. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting MONEY to 89800. That's MONEY to 89800. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the public exposure edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I am joined as ever by the one and only Kathy O'Neill, Woo! the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, Felix. That was me cheering for myself. And you should. <laughs> Everyone should cheer for Kathy O'Neill, even Kathy O'Neill, oh, especially sweet. Kathy O'Neill. And we also have um, Kathy O'Neill's biggest cheerleader, Jordan Weisman, the Moneybox columnist here at Slate. I am your cheerleader, Kathy. Aww. Just like the number one song. Actually, is it still the number one song in America right now? Cheerleader? No, it might not be. It might I have been. Don't know. It might have been replaced by "Can't Feel My Face." You so you wrote that for me. That's what you're saying. Yes. Thank you. I was the ghostwriter. <laughs> I had you in mind the whole time. Very sweet. I, I had that idea. Yeah. When, and Suspicion. Yeah. Uh, we're not saying that you remind us of songs called I Can't Feel My Face, but... <laughs> <laughs> Although, I don't know, given the hangover you're talking about before, maybe. Whoa. Anyway. Whoa. <laughs> no. We never let it be known that anyone ever records this podcast with any kind of a headache. Wait a second, aren't there like ethics of podcasting? (laughs) As opposed to with four bottles of wine sitting on the table. Hungover is a problem, but as long as we're drinking during the show, that's fine. Anyway, I hope that you are all drinking, uh, uh, happy (laughs) listeners, except for those of you who are driving. Um, And I hope you will enjoy this show because it's going to be a good one. Uh, We get to moan about Citibank. Who doesn't like piling onto... Citibank. It just brings these things onto itself. It just paid a $700 million fine to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We will talk about that. And we will talk about the big media merger of the, certainly the week, possibly the year. It's a, it's a fun one with the Financial Times and Nikkei. But first, because it's the summer and because this is Kathy's favorite subject, we're going to talk about adultery. <laughs> Wow. Wow. That's a great introduction. Thanks, Felix. So you guys might have heard that AshleyMadison.com, which is a cheating website, uh, was hacked this week. A a hacker team called the the Impact Team, the self-described Impact Team, hacked the website finding like all this information and credit card numbers and stuff like that. Mainly Uh, just names. Names. Names is the important one. Right. Okay, we're going to get to how important that is. Um, And they threatened to expose all this information if Ashley Madison was not shut down uh, on the web. So, I mean, here's the thing. It's just a website. It's a a dating website for married people. Its motto is, life is short, have an affair. Um, And since I live in New York and I grew up in Boston and I went to school in California... I don't think there's anything particularly horrifying about this, but it turns out a lot of people think about this is having horrifying. affairs or having a website. <laughs> well, that's a great question. So I think they they care about having affairs, but they who's all, they people. And I say people. Let me let me give you some. Who examples. are these people? So Ashley Madison has desperately tried to get noticed. They have 
they have a lot of users, but they want even more. They have 37 million users. <laughs> I, I just just give right. you a little a little, Sorry, co- yes. a little context. I, I did some back the envelope math. That's about 14 percent of the Mar- United States and Canada's entire adult population. Yes, and so, by the and way, and they're just in U.S. and Canada. Uh, it's, uh, it, apparently, it's the vast, vast majority is U.S. and Canada. And, and in Ottawa, it's twenty percent. And what? In Ottawa, it's twenty percent. Full one out of five people are on this website trying to screw each other. Do we know like what the gender breakdown is? Yes, we do. What is it? Seventy percent men, thirty percent women. So it's, and some of those women are fake, it should be said. So it's actually more than 14% of the adult male population then, but it would be... Right. Yeah, so my, so my, my first question is, Yes. is this actually what it says on the tin? Is it a way for married people to have affairs with each other? Or is it a sort of weirdly gussied up quasi-prostitution website? Great question. And I don't know how many prostitutes on it. They obviously don't advertise that. Um, but I do know from reading about it this week um, and some friends who use it that, yes, people definitely meet on this. Um, but a lot of the people uh, use it for cyber sex. So that's actually what they're going for. They do not actually meet in person. And so that goes back to the question of when people object to the concept of Ashley Madison, are they objecting to you know extramaritable sex or are they objecting? And do they think Ashley Madison makes that easier and makes more of it? Or would they actually be happy to hear that most of the time it doesn't actually So this is, this is the Uber causes congestion argument of affairs. If you, if you make having affairs easier, then you're going to have more of them. That's the idea, right. And I mean, Uber, it Uber actually, reason, right? it, it works for Uber, right? Is it, if this is the Uber of, of cheating sites, then maybe, <laughs> maybe it is increasing congestion, if you know what I mean. So I, I, would, I would actually like to, I, you know, I think social science will be able to tell us if that's true to some degree. Because obviously, Ashley Madison is a huge site. At this point, if it were going to have an effect, you would expect to start seeing it show up in... In what? Uh, in, well, I was about to say. So the GSS, the General Social Survey, actually tra- asks people whether or not they have ever had an extramarital affair. Um, and right now, I think the number, la- the last summary I saw of it was something like 14% um, answered in the affirmative, answered yes. So if that number starts going up in the next few years, <laughs> uh, there, there might be an argument to make that Ashley Madison has had and, some and impact. Mm, does it, do you think it uh, would uh, might be. I'm not saying necessarily. But, but if, but, if, if I do the, you know... FaceTime sex with some person I met on Ashley Madison. I'm not going to answer yes. Well, that. yeah, so that, right. that, that's tr- that's a tough one because it's um, not even FaceTime; it's just chat. Yeah, the GSS oh, sometimes really? leaves this the question of sex open to some amount of interpretation. Uh, they mean it in terms of actually like, meeting and having sex, but yeah, I, I, I doubt it. Sort of, I think it would be up to the the person who answers. I assume. Can I just say before we go on that I could talk about this for many many hours? But I'm glad you brought up this social science angle on it because I'd like to argue that they have no clue. Okay. I mean, the thing is that they keep on polling people, and depending on how the question is asked, it is absolutely a different answer. It's actually one of my pet peeves. Like, you know, Felix has pet peeves about certain aspects of wine buying and, and testing and, and Argentina. My pet peeve is bad statistics around sex between men and women, Okay, where they ask... They ask, for example, how many partners have you had in your life? Yeah. And men always have like something like 15 and women have something like three. Um, and you're like, someone's lying here. This is heterosexual se- sex. Like if you add everything up and then divide by N and N is pretty much equal for men and women, about the same number of men and women, you have to come up with the same number. 
You have to. So I guess I'm just, all I'm saying is that the bias to lying is so strong that Ashley Madison may well, you might, might well find that more people admit to having sex, but it might not be the Ashley Madison is having people meet more and having sex. It might mean that the, the sort of societal mores, you know, are changing and Ashley Madison is part of that. So people so, are more so willing to admit they're having sex. Kathy, now you, you mentioned earlier, which was by far the most interesting, you know, tease so far, that you have friends who are on Ashley Madison. Yes. So tell me about your friends. Well, see, I was wondering if it was going to go there. Okay, um, look, I mean, here's another sort of trope that I'd like to push back on. And, when, and, and, and I'm going to explain why morality is playing so heavily in this. It really is. It's because this is slate money. We're going to talk about money, right? But just, just to be clear, a lot of my friends have children and they don't want to leave their husbands because they want their children to feel loved and stable. So when people say how immoral it is to cheat, they often just pretend it's like, it's just a choice between you. You're just being dishonest to your husband. And they don't. They ignore all context. So I, I guess what I'm saying is my friends who use Ashley Madison are in that situation. And there's a lot of them. There you go. Well, I, so, okay. I, I, if one would of they, Kathy's friends are listening right now. <laughs> so, okay, so tell me what would happen yeah. if the hackers follow through on their threat and publish your friends' names. Would that have like a devastating effect on marriages across upper New York? So I really think it matters what information they have. Because number one, nobody uses the real name on Ashley Madison. Oh. Yeah, but the credit card information is the, is the exactly. tricky part. Exactly. So it really matters whether they have the real name on the credit card. That's the only thing that really matters, number one. And number two, women don't pay. Only men pay. So the women are not going to get exposed because they didn't put a credit card and they'll never use their real name. Exactly. And, and some men take precautions. Uh, there's been a active discussion about this on the Reddit thread dedicated to adultery, you'll no doubt be shocked to know. <laughs> and, so, and some people are saying, oh, well, you know, when I signed up, I used a gift card as my credit card. Mm, um, that's smart. Which was a way of getting around actually having any name on file. Uh, but some people didn't think that far ahead, which kind of, I don't know. I, I've been joking for literally months now in the Slate office that Ashley Madison was going to get hacked, in part because other similar sites were getting hacked. It was almost like a slowly building crescendo. Adult Friend Finder got hacked. Right. And it just seemed like at some point Ashley Madison was going to come, come down. And the fact that, you know, people still were tr like trusting such an obvious target uh, with their data uh, is kind of confounding to me. But I guess I, I think it speaks to the, the, the level of illiteracy people do still have about whether or not their data is safe and the degree to which they trust companies that they probably shouldn't be trusting. I also, I'm, Ill, I'm also fascinated at where lines are drawn because um, Fusion has just done a big investigation into the porn industry, which maybe we'll talk about in, in a later episode of Slate Money. But the economics of the porn industry are fascinating. And a lot of the economics of the porn industry are based around this very uncomfortable fact that you basically can't pay for porn easily with a credit card online because the credit card merchants and the banks won't let the porn companies sign up. But evidently, they seem to have been perfectly happy with Ashley Madison. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And, but, I, but there seem to be plenty of people willing to pay for porn. Oh, yeah. The willingness cards. to pay is there. The question is, like, the, the, the sort of hoops you need to jump through in order to get your cash into the hands of the porn merchants are actually non-trivial. Well, this brings me back to my sort of moral, the moral element of this. In terms of the business of it, 
um, they have tried to do a bunch of advertisements that have that have been refused because of the nature of their business. So, for example, uh, the Toronto, the, the city of Toronto, um, refused to let them advertise on their streetcars. Yeah. Um, the Super Bowl rejected a commercial for Ashley Madison, and an airport in Phoenix refused to be renamed the Ashley Madison International Airport. <laughs> um, and it's like it's funny, and it's actually not that surprising. But what it means is that it's like, for example. Uh, word on the street is they wanted to IPO this this company, right? Yeah, that's n- so not. It's happening not going to happen. Like the, no the one feels like this is going to work. Is, yeah. you know, they don't. At least they don't want to be attached to it. They don't want to be like, oh yes, we own stocks in Ashley Madison's parent company. So it's interesting. I, I feel like even though twenty percent of people in Ottawa and fourteen percent of all pe- all adults do this, it's it's verboten to admit it. I call it what I call it is a second Santa Claus. It's like you, (laughs) my theory is that at some point in in your child's life, you admit to them that Santa Claus isn't real, but at no point in your child's life do you ever admit, no matter who you are and how many affairs you had, that your marriage isn't perfect. It's like just the second Santa Claus and it's never, it never comes out. Nobody admits that he's not alive. So there's your secret, dear late listeners, in case you didn't know, Santa Claus does not exist (laughs) and not all marriages are perfect. Um... Not even your own parents. So this week we are sponsored by OneHub, which is the better way to securely store and share all of your business files online in the cloud. You basically become more productive because your teams are up to date because it's fast and it's secure and it has this peer-to-peer plus one technology. So all documents, spreadsheets are immediately distributed and you get the latest version fast and... They have live customer support. You can talk to real people. It's awesome. Thousands of businesses are using it. You should be one of them. Try it for free. Get a 30% discount offer if you go to onehub.com slash money. That's O-N-E-H-U-B dot com slash money. Onehub.com slash money. You will get a free trial and you will get a special 30% discount offer. Where do you go? You go to onehub.com slash money money. Jordan, so I have this theory about Citibank is that like over its history it has gone spectacularly bankrupt and just generally sort of done more weird money laundering and really stupid financial affairs and getting dinged for everything under the sun. What is it about Citibank and what happened this week? Morally bankrupt, I want to uh, clarify, but yes. Um so Citibank it got whacked with a big fine and uh, entered into a big settlement with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, this week. It is going to pay $70 million in fines and then $700 million in relief to its credit card customers uh, for for lack of a ter- better term, screwing them out of money with all these little piddly fees. They were somehow kind of tricking them into paying and uh, attaching to their services. And it's it just like a very long list of ways they got people to kind of accidentally sign up and pay for things like fraud protection. Ironically, right? They were defrauding people <laughs> into paying for fraud protection. I mean, how much... How, I mean, <laughs> you can't make it up. My favorite um, one is where they got people to pay for a service they weren't eligible for. Yeah, that was that, uh, that was like to like disabled people. Um, oh, uh, I mean, there was uh, there were things like 30-day free trials that weren't really free. Um, they had, when their customer service reps are on their phone trying to convince people to sign up for services, they, they basically took, I, I, I'll give it strong consideration as yes, sign me up for this service. Um, all these things are not allowed to do. So my favorite one, so 
there's the the classic upper middle class credit card hack which is that you want the ease of using a credit card to pay for stuff you want the purchase protection you want the airline miles you just don't want to pay any interest so what you do is you put you pay for you your with your credit card everywhere and then you pay off your balance in full at the end of the month and you never get charged any interest mm -hmm. and this is you know i learned this at my father's knee and and i do it myself um and what Citibank did in a particularly evil move is it completely abused those people who think they're getting one over on the um, on the credit card companies because they had this product where um, if you had a zero balance on your credit card um, at the end of the billing cycle, then they wouldn't charge you anything. But here's the thing. If you pay off your credit card on the due date in full, which is quite easy to do on an automatic, you just set up, yeah, pay it in full on the due, due date. That due date is, like, is about two weeks after the end of the billing cycle. So everyone who did that thought that they were getting this thing for free. And in fact, the phone people were telling them that they were getting it for free. But at the end of the billing cycle, there was a balance and they always got charged. Yeah. That so, one was so I mean, evil. It's, that is evil. And it brings, me, uh, brings the question up that didn't these people ever look at their bill? I mean, presumably, they didn't actually lie about what was on the bill, right? They had it charged yeah, I never on look the, at my bill, do you? I, I always look at my bill. I don't really look at my credit card bill, partly because I just pay it off immediately. I'm always offended by how much money I spent. Uh, I <laughs> well, but it, it also brings up this other thing, which is, I, this has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you yeah. when you talk to credit card companies. Whenever you ask them, hey, why am I being charged for this? Or something, you call them up. They'll always offer you fraud protection and over the phone. And I always say, I absolutely know my rights. And one particular thing I know is that if somebody else gets my credit card and even if I accidentally give it to them and they spend money on it, I will not have to pay for that. Yeah, and everyone should know that. Just something which comes automatically. It does come automatically. Yeah, I think yes. there's also like identity theft monitoring and credit score. There was also this um, thing that they offered. It was supposed to help you monitor all, or supposedly it was going to let you monitor your credit score with all three bureaus at once. But in fact, it just didn't do that. There was like a third party that had. All of those some, are scams. Yeah, on my point. I mean, there was all all sorts of things they were doing wrong. But I think you, you asked this question: What's wrong with Citibank? And I I don't think this is really a Citibank story because. This is, in fact, according to Bloomberg, the 10th uh, such settlement the CFPB has come to with a major bank. Um, bank of America, J.P. Morgan, a few years ago, came to similar settlements. This is These are practices that have been going on in the credit card industry, supposedly, since about 2000. But this speaks to less than the, the particularly uh, invidious practices of, of Citibank is the fact that this was an industry that needed cleaning up. And... I think it's it's very appropriate that this settlement came on about the fifth year anniversary of the of of Dodd Frank, which created the CFPB, and there were a lot of questions about whether or not um, you know it was really necessary to have a single uh, a single agency responsible for looking into these kinds of abuses. And it turns out this yes <laughs> yes because this has been going on for a long time and no one was treating it seriously. But also, I mean, it needs to be said that the CFPB actually hasn't stopped this practice. They didn't put anyone in jail like we don't know whether 700 million dollars is more or less than the actual profits they made on this these practices i'm not I, all i'm saying is like cfpb is in fact exposing this practice but and they're 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 hitting them with fines but i'm not sure well, they're, they're actually stopping them well they've said they've, they're saying they're stopping them as like part of the yeah. uh, as part of the agreement like, uh, i mean this yeah. is as, as jed rakoff has written at great length like 
Banks always say they're stopping. Yeah. And then they just go ahead and keep on doing it. Should we now trust them when they say that? Well, no, I'm not saying, I I think, no, don't trust them. Trust (laughs) trust but verify. No, we can't trust them, but at least you have some sort of cop now looking into this issue. I agree. It's an improvement. But here's what I'd like to see. Because one of the things that's interesting to me about this case is that it didn't just involve three douchebags, right? It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to make this. Like sometimes there's like a little trick. Like my friend who's a lawyer found the credit card companies were changing the due date without telling people and charging them late fees before their actual due date, right? And she found this, but it was like a computer program glitch that worked in their favor. And you could theoretically believe that one or two people knew about it. But in this case, you had people who are customer service representatives who are not particularly well paid in on this. Yeah. So my question is, why doesn't CFPB somehow get whistleblower status for people who actually work on the customer service lines for these Yeah, and I companies? think they do. And I think the customer service people, are, you know, there are always one or two who will talk to the CFPB about what they're being told to do. The problem is, I mean, not the problem, but the difficult thing is that once you know that this is going on, you then need to document it. And most importantly, you need to document the scope of it. You can't do this from anecdote. You have to do you have to basically be able to document the full scope of how much money is involved so you can come to a global settlement. One of the aspects of this was that, correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, that the managers actually told them that when you're not being recorded do it this way, and when you're being recorded, do it the right way. Yeah, well, it wasn't even do it this way. It was like, yeah, write your own script, you know, kind oh, of. Right, suddenly right. they turned into, like, you know, going to debt collector mode, improvise, <laughs> just get them to sign up for this stuff. I mean, it's it's not, yeah, it wasn't pretty. Uh, it, I mean, how much more direct evidence of wrongdoing can that's, you get? That's kind of what my point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really on its face, just not something you're supposed to do. Um, but I, I think that... The, well, the other thing I will, the only other thing I'll mention is that the thing about credit cards is they're free. And, you know, as always, when you get something for free, you know, if you're not paying for something, then you are the thing product. being sold. You know, the, the, if you're getting something for free, you you have to just be super alert for the catch. And I think a lot of Americans have internalized this idea that the way that you avoid the catch is by not paying interest on your credit card purchases, not not having not carrying a balance on your credit card and that's true and if you do carry a balance on your credit card then clearly credit cards are not free but what i think what we've discovered here is this is only the beginning of the most obvious ways in which credit card companies make money. And uh, if people are giving you a free credit card, then they're going to be making money in lots of other ways too. And even if you do pay off your balance in full every month. I mean, and we've talked about this before, but obviously people who pay off their balance at the end of the month, if they're not being tricked, they still make good money for the credit card company as long as they spend a lot of money because of the fee that the the credit cards get whenever you purchase something. So if you spend $6,000 a month on your credit card, pay it off at the end of every month, they still are happy to have you as customer. So beware those credit cards. We are also sponsored this week by Mile IQ, which is basically free money for you. If you have any kind of freelance income, any kind of Schedule C income, the average Mile IQ user logs $535 in drives per month. That's money which you can deduct from your taxes, okay? You get 56 cents per mile for every mile that you drive on business. And you just need to be able to 
easily have a record of how many miles you've driven on business. And trying to do that manually is a real pain. All you need to do is install Mile IQ on your phone. That's it. You don't need to plug anything into your car. You don't need to press a button on your phone before you drive anywhere, anything like that. It will, just by being on your phone, it will realize that you're driving your car. It will count the miles that you drive. You can tell it which of your trips were personal and which of your trips were business. And then at the end of the quarter or the end of the year or whenever it is, it will just say, boom, you've driven this many miles for business. It's all auditable. It's all, you know, the records of everything. And you get paid 56 cents per mile, $535 a month, possibly even more than that. It's a great little tool. And of course, you get to try it for free by texting money to 89800. That's M-O-N-E-Y, money to 89800. Give it a go. Okay, media geekery wonkery. Felix, why is it so great that the FT was bought? Tell us. <laughs> okay, so the background here is that the Financial Times has been owned for the past 58 years by Pearson. You may know Pearson. It's a whopping great big global education company, and they make textbooks and syllabuses and all of that kind of stuff, and they made £470 million last year, of which maybe... £20 million, if that, was profit from this newspaper they owned called the Financial Times, which you almost certainly have heard of. Everyone's heard of the FT. It's this venerable institution. It's a great newspaper. I, I, I read it. I have even written for it on occasion. And everyone who would look at the FT, they, it, was, it was run very much at arm's length. It had its own headquarters. Um, it did basically what it needed you know what it it never got much in the way of interference from Pearson except for when Pearson would every so often turn up and say we need fatter margins because that's all that businessmen really know how to say. <laughs> um, Wait, did you say it makes profit? Is that possible? It actually makes money. I, I mean, there, no were, there were a few that. years back then where where it wasn't making money, but then everyone felt a bit sheepish that a financial newspaper wasn't making money, so they they turned things around. They have over seven hundred thousand paying subscribers. Something like two-thirds or three-quarters of them are digital now. So they've really sort of navigated that transition quite well to digital. It's in that class with the Wall Street Journal where your office will pay for it. Like that's, that's a, a lot of A it. lot of people expense it. And, the yeah, the subscription is not cheap. And then they've done a very good job at persuading all of their readers, even the ones who don't pay, to at least register for the website. So they have incredibly granular information about their readers and as a result, they can charge advertising rates, what's known as CPMs, which are, you know, many multiples of what you get everywhere. They can they can charge like, you know, because what will happen is an advertiser will come up to them and say, I want to reach, you know, C-suite decision makers. And they can, because they have this registration database, they can actually deliver that better than most other publications. So they're making money. And the weird thing was that they were making money, you know, despite the fact that they weren't really getting any support from their corporate parent. But they were being left alone. They were being... The best you could say about Pearson was that it left them alone. Well, it didn't really leave them alone. It kept on wanting, you know, to dividend profits out. And it never really invested in the FD. And one of the reasons why Americans in particular often don't read the FD is precisely because they never really made that crucial big push into the U.S. Um, so now, it, they finally, Pearson, the old CEO, Marjorie Scardino, um famously said she would sell the FT over her dead body. The new CEO is not Marjorie <laughs> Scardino, and so he sold the FT, and he got 
a very, very um, healthy price, $1.3 billion. It comes out to roughly $2.6 million per journalist. Um, it's a lot of money. They're paying like mul- many multiples of what... Wait, so is it like Trump style? All the journalists are talking about their net worth now? No, I mean, I, I, I have... Yeah, the, the journalists don't get any of this <laughs> yeah. money. Yeah, uh, no, I was actually I was sitting in the office thinking to myself, wouldn't it have been cheaper if they had just literally bought the journalists? If they had just said, each of you gets a million dollars and we're starting a website, come here. Um, I mean, it's... Oh, well, no, because it's all about reputation, right? We're and sorry. it's also I, more... Not, it's also not just about journalists. There are 600 journalists at the FT, but there are 2,000 employees. Oh, and it's really the other, total? And, okay. and it's the other 1,400 people who actually make the money. That's true. I wonder... The advertisers... Okay, yeah, so the sales two, people, the business people. So it's two thousand people instead of five. So you could break it. To, so you got to divide that by four. Still a healthy price, though. Yeah. And so they're not expecting it to make money in the very near future. So why did they pay so much? So they they're not expecting to sort of get a massive return on their one point three billion dollars. Yeah. But this is one of the interesting things about Nikkei is that. Oh, did I mention it was bought by Nikkei? <laughs> yeah. Which is Japanese. This big Japanese. Um, well, Nikkei is. There's a newspaper in Japan called Nikkei, which is basically the FT of Japan. Um, you know, even onto the fact that the big stock exchange index in the UK is called the FTSE, um, the Financial Times Stock Exchange, you know, mm-hmm. 100. Um, the big stock exchange index in Japan is the Nikkei, again, named after the newspaper. I was wondering about that. Um, I thought the stock exchange bought the FT. It's confusing. <laughs> no, no, it's the newspaper which bought the FT. And the interesting thing about Nikkei is that it is an employee-owned company. This is not some weird trophy asset for some Japanese billionaire. This is a news organization which exists basically solely to make news rather than to make money. So long as they can make news profitably, they are happy. And so they are bringing in the kind of Financial Times expertise. Japan has not had that huge digital revolution that the U.S. and the U.K. have had. So they want that expertise in-house about transitioning to digital they want to be more global because obviously finance is global. And they've reckoned it made sense. Yeah, there's also a little bit of a, a macro story here, too. I, I, I might be reaching a little bit to connect it here, but I'm going to try. And if Felix, feel free to smack me down. But in general, Japanese companies have a lot of cash right now. They're just a lot there. They, and they don't really know what to do with it. Um, and so we're apparently beginning to see a little bit of a a weird repeat of the 80s where they're making lots of foreign purchases and snapping up assets, things like the FT. Are there other um, examples? I, you know, I, I was looking at kind of like a, ch- I, 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 when I was looking, I was looking at a chart of foreign investment mm-hmm. by Japanese companies. I, it, unfortunately, it didn't have specific like, oh, they bought this company and this, this company and this company. But it is going like this. Like, oh, ha, huh, this is another moment where Jordan on air tries to draw a picture for the listeners. <laughs> uh, well, everybody, I'm, I'm it's making, going up. I'm taking There's my finger and, going up. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm drawing, but, but anyway, so point and one of the, one of the, the big difference between now and the 80s is that yeah. the government, the Japanese government is encouraging Japanese corporations to buy foreign assets, weirdly, partly in an attempt to weaken the yen. Yeah, well, so this is... How does that work? Well, kind of. I, I, maybe I will see if we're on the same page here. My, my take on it is that they've been trying to push down the value of the yen through their versions of QE and whatnot. And so that's making it easy for them to go and buy anything, to make purchases, debts going to be cheap for them. Um, but 
what a lot of businessmen in Japan are saying right now is there isn't they they aren't really buying the idea that Japan's going to take off on like breakneck growth anytime soon. So they see it as smarter to go invest abroad where they see more opportunities than domestically, which is kind of defeating the purpose of, of Japan's macro policy in some ways. And then yeah, and if you're sending your yen abroad, if you're basically selling yeah, that's 160 what... billion yen and buying 840 million pounds, then that's going to at the margin make the pound a bit stronger and the yen yes, a bit weaker. you're selling your your currency for other currency. Okay, that so, sort of makes sense. So on the one hand, it, it's kind of a, a it, on one hand, it's there. It's Japan's macro policy working. On the other hand, it's sort of a rebuke to it, which is strange. It's the two things happening at once. I want to go back to how much we should trust this. Like, and is this good for journalism? So we, I, anytime that a journalistic organization becomes owned by a news organization rather than a random international educational conglomerate, I would say is a good day. <laughs> well, it certainly makes me feel all warm inside that it's a, you know, it's the employee's own Nikkei, right? But on the other hand, I heard rumors that they were kind of, you know, beholden to the the, the Japanese businessmen. So Nikkei itself is not what you would call a an aggressive, hard-hitting newspaper. Um, the ethos of the Financial Times is that we believe in capitalism, but we're going to really, you know, be tough on businesses. In Japan, it's much more respectful to business. And when you get um, big sort of corporate scandals in Japan. Nikkei was generally sort of behind the curve because it doesn't like it's constitutionally it doesn't like being rude to big business. Um, so wouldn't and, that be uh, bad for the FT if they're supposed to be polite all of a sudden? Well, okay, so that's the question. The big worry was that somehow this internal feeling that the Nikkei has that it should be respectful of business is somehow going to get exported from Tokyo to London and suddenly the FT is going to feel that way. No, clearly it won't. Timid. Will the new owners of the FT start phoning up you know, Lionel Barber or the editor of the FT in some kind of, you know, irate manner every time that he writes something rude about a company? No, I, I find it very unlikely that this timidity is going to get exported to the FT. What I find more likely, frankly, is that the FT's aggression towards companies might get exported to Nikkei. I, I mean, Japan has a very kind of complicated and clubby press culture, so I, I'm a little doubtful that owning a, a British newspaper is going to penetrate or their, their ethos is really going to penetrate not just Nikkei, but just, I mean, or not just Nikkei's individual reporters, but that, that whole tradition that they sort of have. There's this idea. Yeah, that, I, I don't yeah. think Nikkei is going to become, yeah. you know, a, a muckraking, yeah. you know, kind of place overnight. But I similarly don't think that they are going to interfere with the FT's editorial independence. Well, I do think there is a question of what happens when the FT writes something very critical of a Japanese company. It's yeah, that it's that specific intersection that I'll be curious to see what happens. And 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 my feeling there is yeah. that they will and that it will be fine. Mm -hmm. Um my feeling is not it's a, I don't think that the Nikkei's timidity when it comes to these things is a function of what you might call consequentialism. They're not saying, well, we could write this story, but then we would get a phone call from a big advertiser, or we could write this story, but then we would not be able to look these people in the face. Or, you know. I think it's just the way they are, that they are respectful to business. That's the way that the newspaper has historically always been. It's the way that the journalists work. And that if the FT writes something nasty about 
these companies, which it has done many times in the past, and the companies have you know continued on, and it's you know it's it's played out as you would expect it it to. You know, those companies won't be happy about it, but I don't think that they're going to somehow try to retaliate against the owner. Yeah. I mean, there's we'll also, see. We'll see. I we'll mean, see. I don't. I don't want to assume. Yeah. There's also, you know, the obvious point uh, to make. I, I guess to make just to play devil's advocate myself is it's it's not as if Nikkei bought the Financial Times without reading it. You know, <laughs> they, they have they, been partners for yeah. uh, good. Like they've been very close partners for the cu- past couple of years. They've had a big sort of editorial partnership. They know each other really well. And actually, one of the things that the CEO said is that there were a bunch of different people who wanted to buy the FT. And the the very first criterion was that the new owner had to preserve editorial independence and that most, he said, most of the potential bidders um, fell away at that first hurdle. Um, now, who was he talking about there? I think we all know who he was talking about there. He was talking about Bloomberg. Oh, yeah. Because Bloomberg can and will interfere with editorial. Do we have examples of that? And Bloomberg well, you, has China. bid for the China, FT. China, China. Yes. I mean, that's the, the Bloomberg's, yeah, I mean, the, there's that whole saga about them essentially yeah. killing China coverage. And, and Mike Bloomberg business. has been very clear from day one that the job of the Bloomberg journalists is to sell Bloomberg terminals. He has never really implemented any any form of sort of, you know, official editorial independence. and mm. And so I think that, you know... Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg wanted to own it, but he wanted to own it because he wanted to control it. And precisely because he wanted to control it, that was why those conversations just never took off. Well, good on them for not selling it to Mike. (laughs) Okay, and now I'm going to annoy everyone who isn't in Chicago by talking just to the people in Chicago and telling them that the Culture Gab Fest, which you really, really should be listening to, is coming to Chicago. There's a live show. Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, Dana Stevens will be having a Q&A, but first they'll be doing a whole discussion of the culture of the week. They're doing their Gab Fest basically live at the Music Box Theater in Chicago on Tuesday, September 22. So if you're around on Tuesday, September 22, 7 o'clock in the evening, buy tickets. And if you're feeling alcoholic, you can even get a, one of a very, very limited number of tickets where you get to join the hosts for a pre-show cocktail hour. And that means the show is going to be better because they will have been drinking cocktails. Culture Gab Fest, live in Chicago, September 22nd at 7.30 p.m. For information, go to slate.com slash culture shy. That's slate.com slash C-U-L-T-U-R-E, culture, C-H-I, Chicago. Oh, and here's another little hack you can do. If you join Slate Plus before you buy your ticket, then you get 30% off the ticket. Boom. And numbers. Does anyone have a number this week? I'll start. Yeah, sure. Mine's. So my number is $3.2 billion. Uh, dollars, which is how much a hedge fund called Glenview Capital Management has made just by essentially betting on Obamacare, investing in insurers and hospitals since the law was passed way back when. 
uh, they looked at the situation and said, we think this law is going to stick around and we think it's going to make a lot of money for some people in the healthcare industry. And they've been very, very right. So it's just... And it's all on the long side. Yeah, all, all on the long side. Like they've just been saying, we think their profits are going up. And they, again, have been... Basic. But wasn't the purpose of Obamacare to try and reduce the profits of the healthcare industry? No. 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 Where did you hear that? <laughs> I, he, I think Felix actually asked that tongue into with his tongue oh, firmly okay. in cheek okay. there. <laughs> but, I mean, I thought... You know, <laughs> we took a moment, but no, I mean, it was, it's always, everyone sort of expected that hospitals would make more off this. Insurers, because even though they're having, they're going to be regulated more heavily, like utilities, um, they would still have more customers in the end. So theoretically, they should be earning more. Um, there have been some instances where insurers have kind of projected incorrectly their mix of customers, how many would be sick, how many would be healthy. And so they've taken a hit, but they're sort of adjusting to that. Um, and also, like, Athena just bought Cigna. Like, they're consolidating. There's, there's also so, been some so, so consolidation. Here's, yes. here's the question. Is this a data point that says that Obamacare is not, and I hate to use this phrase, bending the cost curve? Or is this a separate issue? I think it's sort of a separate issue. I think the um, hurting more people into insurers and uh, getting more people or making it possible for more people to pay their hospital bills is really what we're talking about at this point. Bending the cost curve is um, not really going, if anything, that will positively affect insurers. Uh, And as for the hospitals, the idea isn't so much to kill their profits so much as it is to make them work more efficiently. I know so. we're in the numbers round, but you guys have to say what bending the cost curve is. Oh, good point. Bending the cost curve just means actually slowing the rise of healthcare prices and then eventually slowing the growth rate. So instead of just going the growth rate itself going exponentially up, uh, the rate itself of growth kind of curves downward. So it's Jordan slows. is Jordan showing is graphs. His, he's drawing <laughs> I actually got so, uh, a note to the listeners. I in in real life just talk with my hands. So, so like. <laughs> I, the, the, podcasting the, is a real podcasting trouble, is yeah. like just constitutionally you're doing difficult. great. You're doing great. So, thank you, Kathy. I you, appreciate we, we'll that. get there eventually. Jordan. One day, maybe on year two, I'll <laughs> stop trying we to are draw in year two. Are. I mean, on year three, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my number's fifteen. Uh huh. Do you know why? No, Kathy. Why is your number fifteen? Because is that the, no, I'm not going to make an Ashley Madison joke. <laughs> I don't even know what you were going to say. Um, 15. Um, the fast food workers of New York City and, uh, are oh, going to be 15. paid $15 an hour. This is such a bad experiment. I hate this one. Oh, I love this. I, I hate this. It's so bad. Can I, can I rant at you? Or oh, finish please, your part? No, try. Okay, sorry. What, what is... Okay, $15 an hour. How many people are making... What's the 180,000 people work in fast food joints. And This is statewide, by the way. This oh, is, it's statewide. This sorry. is why I hate it. But anyway, continue. It's a statewide uh, raise... Yeah, because it's Cuomo. Cuomo was pushing this. And yeah. he did this weird, weird trick where he got this to happen. I, um, it's not uh, totally official yet, but expected to be. And they're going to get their ra- uh, wages raised to fifteen dollars an hour. The current minimum wage is seven fifty, so this is uh, seven twenty-five. So this is more than double. I think it's eight seventy-five in New York right now. But so I'm going to rant now about why I hate this, which is. Um, yes, this applies to all of New York State. The wage is going up to $15 an hour for fast food workers in 2018 in New York City. Everywhere else in the state, it's going up to tw- by 2021. $15 an hour, I, I, I've talked about this on podcast before. I'm nervous about what it's going to do, even in big cities like New York. But you can at least try to make an argument that it, it's sustainable in, in, in those major metro areas. It's a lot harder to make that argument about Binghamton, New York, about Buffalo, New York, about Elmira, New York, about little Rust Belt towns in the North End around like Niagara Falls, whatever. I mean, almost nobody was suggesting this as a policy that would be appropriate for burnt out parts of the country that have that already have kind of run down economies. And it's just if you're talking about something that could cost jobs 
and could make it more difficult to run businesses and lead to prices rising. It's just it it seems like too much. And even if you look, even though they're delaying it to 2021 in that part of the country, if you project out wages a bit and assume really fast growth, like 3.54%, it's still going to be very high compared to what the median wages in those parts of the state. I'm not going to, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm more positive than you, obviously, because I care about those people making decent wages. But <laughs> I, I have too. seen. A, but they, they I have lose seen, their jobs. It's not. Well, some no, of them no. will lose their jobs, yeah. but it's you know right now they're on food stamps with shitty jobs. So I I would like the 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 situation to be clarified. But um, I would also argue that if I've seen calculations done on you know if McDonald's how much of McDonald's profits would go away if they paid their their worker as $15 an hour and it's it's not like they'd be in the red after that they would not be in the red it's, so in that from that perspective it is viable okay well, so, so enough it, this is the numbers round we're oh, having sorry, a yeah. whole there's, segment there's more on this. about this. and this is <laughs> Kathy's number so Kathy gets the last fine, word fine fine <laughs> i'm going to be sit here and cross my arms that you can't see me doing either just like my <laughs> trying to draw the three other graphs but anyway um my number I, I like this one, is $200 million, which is the amount of delinquent taxi medallion loans at um, Melrose Credit Union, which is one of the big credit unions which lends money against del- oh, yeah. um, taxi medallions. The, this is in a cl- Are you a, sneaking in an Uber thing I'm, right now? Well, I'm not, I, well, not even going to talk about Uber, but there's this wonderful guy called Gene Friedman who owns thousands of taxi medallions, and he has these um, companies. He he actually mostly borrowed from Citibank, but it turns out that with the that people who own taxi medallions are red blooded capitalists, and even if they can quite happily make the interest payments on those medallions, if the medallion falls in value to less than the value of the loan if if they if they become like underwater on their medallion they do what the capitalists do and they just walk away they say, sure. oh, they just say, okay take the medallion i don't need this anymore and they walk away yep and true and capitalists so, don't have moral weight around exactly so we have we have a you know a subprime walking away crisis in the um in the taxi medallion world and it's going to be interesting very interesting to see um how it plays out because they the cash flows associated with those medallions really haven't changed very much but the um, value of the medallions. It seems to be no one. You know, they're just not changing hands anymore. Yeah, after years and years in which they just could go do nothing but go up and becoming stupidly valuable uh, that's assets. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, subscribe to us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes Store and then subscribing. It's easy. Write to us at slatemoney at slate dot com. Send little notes to Audrey Quinn, the producer, telling her how wonderful she is. Um, send little notes to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, telling him that he shouldn't worry so much about microphones. Um, and send notes to Andy Bowers, the executive producer, asking him what he actually does for a living. Because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, what does an executive producer do? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yes, we are part of the Panoply Network. Check them all out at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Money.